Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 236 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Tuesday morning, April 4th, 2023. I'm Bobby Chesney. Uh, I'm Steve Vladek. Hello, Steve. Hi, Bobby. How are you? I'm okay. I um I was t- I was telling you before we started recording that you know we're really into the the cr- the crunch period for book stuff. It's six yeah. six weeks from today. This book here I'm holding in my hand. This the, basic the books docket. publication, yeah. the Shadow Docket: How the Supreme Court Uses Stealth Rulings to Amass Power and Undermine the Republic. Good title. It is. Um, so uh, six weeks from today's publication day, which means that behind the scenes there's like already an absolute like. Um, avalanche of stuff that I have to do. Um, What's the over-under on the number of book talks you're going to give, counting the ones you may have already done? Uh, if you if you said 100, I'd take the over. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, a bunch of those are not formal. Like A bunch of those are just yeah, like, hey, I'm yeah. speaking to this group, and oh, by the way, here's my book. Um, When's, uh, you're speaking here in Austin at Book People, our yes. beloved local bookstore. So the, 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 I'll, I'll post about this on social media next week because next week begins the real big sort of publicity tour. But uh-huh. the, the events, the, we're going to have live in-person events in D.C., New York, Austin, uh, Seattle, San Francisco. Is this going to be like Live Aid where you perform at one of these, hop on a plane, and then go to another one the same day? Uh, no. <laughs> um, but and then, and then, was, it, um, was it Phil Collins who did that? It was. Okay. Um, but you no, know, and you, I didn't get to say, and, and the cutest little event of all in, in Lenox, Massachusetts in July. Oh, really? Oh, um, that's nice. When, when I'll You'll be, be up in there. the hood, yes. anyways. So um, there'll be a lot more information, but just this is, this is what is, this is what is, um, Consuming my life at this moment. You must have a lot of miles. If you don't, you soon will. Um, I, you know, it's believe it or not, there have been busier travel periods in my professional life because because book tours are out. I mean, like I'm doing five in person events, but like the publishers don't like them. They don't find a good return. Just compared to like going on a podcast or you know yeah, or or yeah. going on like a big cable news show, much bigger audiences. Yes. Makes sense. Versus like you know, it'll be. I mean, it's fun to get like 150 people in a bookstore talking about the book, but you know, hey, but you've got like 15,000 right here. Good morning, everybody. Thanks for listening. Tinyurl.com/slash/shadowdocket. <laughs> Um, anyway, so um, oh, that's awesome. So I, I I'm gonna really try to avoid talking about this nonstop for the next six weeks, but that's that's what's going on in my life. <laughs> All right, well, uh, congrats on that again. It's, it's an incredible um, achievement. Happy Indictment Day! Oh, is, yeah. Uh, will the indictment? When's it gonna get released? It's know. in tampering our ability to set forth what is in the indictment. The fact that we don't have the indictment. It, it is it is remarkably uh, 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 unhelpful to everyone's hot takes. Did about they not the know that we finally scheduled our show for this morning? Seriously. Tuesday morning. That's our usual recording slide. All right. So so we will talk a little bit about the uh, the arraignment of former President Donald Trump uh, in New York, I guess, uh, sometime this morning. Uh, or early this afternoon. Early this afternoon. Yeah. Get lunch first. Um, seriously. Um, Okay, so we'll talk about that. We've got an executive order from President Biden on commercial spyware. So we'll do a little briefing on that. And um, we've got a central command notice late last night about a, uh, an airstrike uh, killing an Islamic State figure. We can note that. Um, on the litigation front, Steve? We have a denial of cert in Donziger, uh, shockingly, uh, with a five-page dissent from Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. Uh, it's funny how everyone who was paying no attention to the case is like, I'm so surprised it's a Gorsuch-Kavanaugh dissent. And I'm like, 
I'm not surprised at all. It's a Gorsuch Kavanaugh descent. Well, I feel like we should start there because we've kind of started unwrapping the present. So let's uh, let's let's tear the rest oh. of the paper off that thing and okay. put it all out there. Okay, for in case there's somebody's not been tracking. Uh, what the what? The case is about what? So Steve Donziger uh, was uh, is. Um, a former lawyer who had tried very aggressively and perhaps a little too aggressively um, to go after Chevron for massive uh, environmental pollution in Ecuador caused by Chevron's predecessor, Texaco. Um, long, long story short, Donziger is eventually held in civil contempt by a federal judge in New York as part of Chevron's civil RICO suit against him. Um, his non-compliance with at least some of the civil contempt orders leads to criminal contempt charges that the Justice Department declined to prosecute. Um, under a very obscure provision of the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure, the district judge, uh, your former boss, Judge Kaplan, indeed, uh, at this point uh, appointed uh, private special prosecutors to try the contempt offenses. And the gravamen of Donziger's appeal was that that's, one, not... Uh, uh, authorized by the relevant rule and statutes, and two, insofar as it is, it's unconstitutional. Um, we lost on that two to one, but I represent Donziger. I represented him in the Second Circuit on the appeal of his criminal contempt conviction and in the Supreme Court. We lost two to one in the Second Circuit over, I was, I, I thought, a pretty good dissent from Judge Menasche, Um And we had filed for cert. Um, it had gone to conference five times. Um, I had increasingly come to suspect that the perpetual relisting was a sign that someone was dissenting from a yeah. denial and lo and behold <laughs> indeed so it was um so last monday we got the the opinion uh from justice gorsuch joined by justice kavanaugh dissenting from the denial of certiorari um sometimes dissents are here's why we should take this case this one was here's why we're right uh, <laughs> like you know I, justice gorsuch did not hide the ball on on what he thought of our arguments and how he would have ruled had there been um two more votes for cert so, so what uh and then was there anything in in what he said there substantively that was surprising or different or, no or i mean I, it was a, it was a lovely recitation of our brief um <laughs> right you um i you know i do think i mean i, I think the the useful thing about justice gorsuch's dissent um, although it's not going to benefit Donziger, is that I do think this will now raise the profile of the constitutional problem. I mean, the, to make a long story short, the Supreme Court blessed this practice 35 years ago, right, before any of its subsequent... The private prosecutor yeah, practice. I'm sorry, yes. Yeah. Um, before any of its subsequent executive power, separation of powers cases that have really drawn much more formalistic lines right, between the branches. So 35 years ago, the court says, oh, this is okay, it's an exercise of judicial power. Today, the court would mm. never think of prosecutors, even so court- this is all wrapped up in Morrison v. Olson. Well, so it's, so one of the theories, so, you know, everyone has a theory about why the liberals, right, didn't come with Gorsuch and Kavanaugh to, to, to join hands and, and get this case up. And so one of the theories online is that, you know, the more liberal justices were worried about an opportunity for the court to revisit Morrison versus Olson, which, of course, has become a bit of a bête noir, right, among conservative con law scholars. Um, I'll just say, I mean, this case is so much easier than Morrison, right? In Morrison, <laughs> you had a statute, the independent counsel statute, that expressly authorized right. the inner branch appointment of the independent counsel. There's no statute here. Right. So it's this rule that doesn't say it in so many words. So it does, right? But it doesn't say inner branch, right? So so the rule memorializes the 35-year-old Supreme Court decision where the understanding was that these prosecutors are simply like adjuncts of the judiciary. Yeah. 
the court's subsequent jurisprudence makes clear that that's not tenable. Mm. And so the Gorsuch dissent, I think, is actually really helpful in crystallizing for future district courts why they should be very wary about exercising this kind of appointment power. Well, I guess it raises the question, um, do do you think that this same issue is therefore destined to come back at some point, just needs a fresh vehicle for the, or just a slightly different alignment on the court. Right, or a more sympathetic defendant. I, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 do, th- right. I do think that this is a charged case. For those who don't follow it, yes. let's just say there's some friction yes. that attends all the characters in this particular story. Yes. Um, let's just say, yes, I, I, that's right. I, I think... Um, this is, to me, the great question of the Gorsuch dissent, right? Like, the, if, I, if I'm a district judge and I read the Gorsuch dissent, like, I'm very, very wary about whether if DOJ, prosecute, if DOJ declines to prosecute a criminal contempt case, I should continue. Right, um, so it's a bit of a shot across the bow. Right. Of course, I mean, if that's true, then there won't be appeals because the government's not going to appeal, like, a deni- who's going to appeal the a district court's refusal to appoint a private special prosecutor? So part, you know, we had, we, part of the case we had tried to make for cert is actually this is an unusually good vehicle because it's the rare example of a private criminal contempt prosecution that produced a final appealable judgment. Right. It's like a, a, a rare chance to do it. But you're right. that if, if there's enough awareness of the dissent, this could help right. on the margin deter an already rare practice. Right. So, it's, so it's, how, how rare is it? Um, we haven't been able to find statistics, um, right? The, we found like four recent examples in like the last 10 years, mm-hmm. but three of them, well, not Han Donziger, three of them quickly dissipated. The fourth was this bizarre dispute in South Dakota where um, the judge wanted the marshals to wear or to wear masks or to like reveal their COVID vaccination status, and they wouldn't. And so he held the marshals in contempt, and DOJ oh, refused awkward. to prosecute the marshals. That's super um, awkward. Yeah. That case went away because uh, what usually happens is calmer heads prevail, yeah, like, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. backroom, n- n- right, a, a, right? right. It, so you, you really need a sort of um, a non-governmental defendant, um, right, for this case to go through. And those cases, and, and a case where DOJ declines to prosecute a non-governmental defendant for criminal contempt is itself rare. Do you think this is an area where it would be helpful for Congress to get involved and to craft a... So there will occasionally be need for this vehicle. Yes. yes. Is this a situation where we need Congress to pass some legislation to create a, that would help. a more defensible yeah. vehicle for I, actually appointing somebody? That would help. Of course, that would then raise the Morrison versus Olson question much more squarely. Yes, it would. Um, now, I mean, mind you, the you know, I, I think there's a good debate about whether the the sin in Morrison is the appointment or the sin in Morrison is the executive branch's lack of control. Like, yeah, lack of removal. Right. Um, Scalia said both. I actually think there's a stronger argument on the latter, um, because we actually already have one context where courts do appoint prosecutors. Um, under 28 U.S.C. 546D, back to Trump-era vacancy conversations. Oh, Lord. Right? Um, there are contexts in which U.S. attorneys can be appointed by the local district court if a vacancy hasn't been filled yeah. by the president or the attorney general within a suitable time. No one's ever really argued that that's unconstitutional, right? So you're saying I might get appointed U.S. attorney if we just have the cards break the right way? I mean, yeah. Okay. I mean. It's finally going to happen. Dean of dean of local law school? Both at the same time, right? Yeah. Accumulating titles. I was trying to think. Of, I was trying to, so, so not hard to imagine a universe in which, like, a Democratic president has trouble appointing a U.S. attorney for the Western District of Texas? Oh, you're, you're telling me I should start brushing up my resume. All right. This is um, exciting. Speaking of the Western District of Texas, can we talk? Can we briefly talk about my little run-in with Judge Kazmarek? 
Um, oh, the online. Uh, the, the, uh, it's an exchange that begins in the pages of the what would we the F third or uh, the F sub F sub third, third. Yes. and and then and then merges next in the pages of Slate. Yeah. So what what's afoot here? Um, so just one, one more. Sorry, I'm, this is not really national security related, but I just I couldn't I couldn't resist. Um, Bobby Bobby's like. Um, so really, really briefly. So you know, I've been on this quixotic crusade against judge shopping, um, where you know parties take advantage of quirky rules in at least some federal district courts. Not all of which are in Texas, but a number of which are in Texas. Yeah. So is, am I right that the the idea is that there are a number of districts that have divisions where there's one judge in one of the divisions. And if you file in that division, you you can by doing so know who you're going to get. Yes, uh, as your judge. you have a 100% chance of, of getting a specific judge. There are eight such divisions across Texas, um, right? The, there was a whole sort of brouhaha not so long ago about how this was being used in the nearby Waco division right, for, for patent, patent cases, cases. Um, right? So Texas, the state of Texas, keeps taking advantage of these single judge divisions in its challenges to Biden administration policies. Um, even though the attorney general's here in Austin, it never files in Austin. It files in Amarillo or Victoria, or Lubbock, or Midland. That's my favorite. Midland is my favorite. <laughs> you should go spend some time. Um, uh, hey, I was, I was there recently. Friday Night Lights. Oh, you know what? That would be a good, fun road trip. Are you suggesting a... I mean, I would do it. Karen would be mad at me, but yeah. I would do it. Anyway, all right, long story great. short. So DOJ, right, which is the defendant in all of these cases... Oh, by the way, I should clarify, because some listeners are probably like, Permian is in Odessa. I know, I know. So do I. Yeah. But Midland and Odessa, <laughs> right, re- right especially, by, right especially by relative to Austin, they're next to each other. Yeah. Um, so anyway, the um, that is that is a long. I, I've driven that whole stretch of I twenty. That is. <sighs> yeah, it can be tough. Um, sorry, I'm I'm rambling. Um, so DOJ <laughs> has moved to transfer three of these thirty cases that Texas has now filed in these random divisions. Um, it lost a motion to transfer before Judge Tipton in an immigration case last month. This was a motion to transfer a challenge to a new Department of Labor rule about ESG guidance for pension trust assets. Mm-hmm. Um, it lost, and you know, I don't. We can we we can have a different podcast about the merits of the motion to transfer. But in the midst of right rejecting DOJ's motion to transfer, Judge Kaczmarek took a couple of pretty uh, pot shots at me. Um, and just to clarify, yeah. you're not involved in the case. I'm not involved in the case at all. Now I am. But you've been commenting about the general practice that now did did the DOJ did they reference any yes. of your work? Yes. So DOJ. So I'm I've been collecting just sort of data because um, one of the things is that like no one really sort of studies these things comprehensively. And right. All I've been trying to do is sort of point out to people how much Texas as a party is doing this. And so every time Texas files a new lawsuit against the Biden administration, which is like once a week, um, right, I post to Twitter updated statistics on what, where they're filing, who they're drawing, like what this means for totals. And interesting. So the DOJ brief actually cites to that as opposed to sort of doing, replicating that work and presenting it directly, which yes. may, maybe isn't the... You know, maybe better to have done it that way. But but there's nothing unusual really about citing to someone who, if a reporter yeah. had had a story right. that documents something. I mean, that, let me put it this way: if that'd there, be common. If, if, if I've if I have messed up the data, right? If there are any flaws in the lists I've generated of these cases, I'm all ears. Like I want the data to be accurate. Yeah. No one has suggested, including right. Judge Kazmarek, that the data is wrong. Right. Right, and so the fact that I'm posting it to Twitter seems like not the point. Anyway, All right. So what ha- what co- what kind of shot is taken? So two shots. So first, right, he sort of mocks the idea that um, a relevant argument could be based upon quote a professor with a Twitter account. 
Um, right. You, in fairness, when you put it that way. <laughs> well, I mean, yes, it kind of downplays exactly what the relevant tweets were doing, which is right. like listing all of the cases. Right. The, the question is, what's what's the underlying empirical information? Right. It's not it's not where it is. It's what it is. Right. right? And yeah. nothing in the opinion rejects the information. Right. The what? Indeed. Right. I mean, we should say Texas itself has not disputed that it is judge shopping. It has publicly admitted that it's filing these cases in these courts in order to draw right. because the, these rule, judges. the rules allow it. And the rules so allow it. it? Um, right. Okay. So, but then, right, he dropped a whole footnote um, about uh, Charles Allen Wright. Oh, right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Share that. Um, well, I, I mean, don't don't, yeah. don't have to repeat. So, it, so the the gist of the footnote was that the late great Charles Allen Wright, um, who taught here forever, who was a legendary federal courts teacher and scholar and, and who, person, and his honorific chair is held by you. Well, I'm getting to that. That's oh, the, I'm sorry. That, I that's, let the dog the, out. Anyway, but so so the footnote talks about how like Charles Allen Wright, you know, although he had to deal with publish or perish when he was a law professor, you know, we're lucky that he didn't have to deal with the quote tweet and repeat indignity of the Twitter sphere. And I just, you know, I think that was a very clumsy attempt to say, like, Charlie Wright would be rolling over in his grave if he knew what the current holder of his chair was doing with his time. Kind of kind of came off that way. Yes. Which is funny because, like, lots of people who read that had no idea that that was a shot at me because they didn't know that I am the Charles Allen Wright right, chair kind of, in federal but, but, it, but it, otherwise, it doesn't make any sense to yes. have mentioned it otherwise in the context of yes. referencing your tweeting. Anyway, so long story short, all this was totally irrelevant to the matter at hand, which was denying DOJ's motion to transfer. But as I tried to explain in a piece I wrote for Slate the next day, um, I actually think this was like an unfortunate reinforcement of the problem of judge shopping, which is the appearance, if not the reality, right, that judges are not necessarily neutrally disposed toward the parties before them. I think that Charles Allen Wright probably would have appreciated you know, obviously, th there's a different set of platforms and media opportunities and ways to convey information. But the careful study of what goes on in and, and about the courts is, of course, uh, a hallmark of his his legendary work. And so I think that he would have appreciated a colleague, a future colleague, engaging in descriptive accounts of these interesting and important well, practices. And, and I would say, I mean, I don't think I'm speaking out of school here. And, and I think he would have, even perhaps more than I, uh, been the first to say that sometimes it's really important for the courts to actually look to their own institutional interests sure. and to the appearance right. and to how, how how public perception of the integrity of the judiciary might be undermined. So thinking about the, the underlying important question, which is the uh, availability of ha knowing who your judge is going to be, at the district-wide level, that's not possible because every district – I assume every district has more than one judge. Every, every Article Three district court yeah, has yeah. at least two. Yeah, yeah. Guam has one, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So so is part of the answer here that insofar as a division system exists within any particular district, if there's a division that has only one judge, should Congress by statute uh, change it such that the if it's only one judge yeah. in that district, you can't, you know, you have to have a rotation. You, you don't get to use the division yeah. to define that's what, who's going mean, to that, So case. that's what many district courts do, right? So many district courts, like every judge has a duty station, right? And mm -hmm. so your duty station is like your home court, right? But plenty of district judges regularly travel, especially those who don't, whose duty stations are not big cities, yeah. right? Regularly travel among multiple courthouses to hear cases. Yeah. 
there there are historical reasons why that hasn't been the pattern sure. in Texas and a couple of other sure. states. And the, the distance between cities can be grand, Indeed. and it, it can be very unpleasant yeah. as, a, as a matter of how it would impact your life. But, but at the end of the day, what it suggests is either the need for more judges, yes. a rule of at least two per division, yes. or else where you get down to one, yep. you have to be able to travel. So the short version is the relevant statute, 28 U.S.C. section 137, delegates to each district court the power to set its own division of business rules. Yeah. So each district court could fix this on its own, but failing that, yes, Congress could condition the delegation on yeah. no less than or no more than a 50% shot of drawing a specific judge, a 33% shot of drawing a specific right. judge. So this seems like the kind of thing, a great example of the Rawlsian insight that the rules you might prefer knowing what cards you're holding probably different than rules you, you would select if you yep. don't know, if you're behind the, yep. the veil of ignorance. And so if we were just talking about designing a system in the abstract, and, and we began from the premise that it, it does matter, it can matter in some subset of cases who the judges are, um, you probably want to have a system in which there's really no way for a litigant to know for sure which judge they're going to get when they file in a particular area. Um, but we don't have that currently. Um, we don't. But I, and the last thing I'll just say is that one of the things that strikes me about this and I, I guess this strikes me about a lot of the work I do is I don't I like it is so unfortunately sort of viewed as partisan, right? That like you know this, that you know because the most visible current um, exploiter of this quirk is the state of Texas, right? Everyone assumes that like you know this is just about Republicans, and it's right. not, right? right? Like I mean the look this, this is this is a fundamental problem of of our current society that everything has to be viewed through the lens of partisan advantage. And therefore, which, you know, the first question for assessing anyone's uh, claim about some empirical matter is, well, but wait a minute, who are they and what angle are, what is their known associations? And so anything you do or say that runs one way, it's going to get criticized as um, somehow maybe being less than accurate or somehow being less than uh, what it seems because it happens to favor a political outcome that they can tell would be one you would like. Um, but I've seen plenty of evidence over time that you call it both ways yeah. when appropriate. Yeah. Well, and, and just, I mean, I, I briefly mentioned the patent context, right? Like, everyone agreed in the patent context that it was, like, not a good idea to have, you know, a single judge in Waco basically able to take over the entire nat- nationwide patent docket. If we could agree that that's true for patent cases where right. there's no partisan right. it's got Yeah, it's got nothing to do with... Uh, I'm with you. Um, you usually are. Yeah, so on at, most at least things, on, at least yeah. on like sort of the you know. We you know I think one of the things we we show on this show is yes. that people that actually can disagree about a lot of stuff, nonetheless, are going to have a lot more in common than otherwise, and it's just only interesting to to focus on the stuff we disagree about. True. Um, well, this will probably. Or should I say no? It isn't. No, exactly. Um, I, I, blew, I don't I know if it. we'll have anything to dis- disagree about here, but I want to um, give a little briefing on an executive order that President Biden issued on the 27th of March, uh, called the Executive Order on Prohibition on Use by the United States Government of Commercial Spyware that Ooh. poses risk to dun, national dun, dun. security. Bum 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 bum. So it's always fun with an executive order to begin by asking. Um, what type or source of authority is the president exercising here? Sometimes an executive order is an expression of a claim of Article II authority that represents a sort of separation of powers issue. Sometimes it's an implementation of statutory authority. Sometimes it's what I like to call sort of a employer authority, where it's the 
head of the company issuing orders internally to people who work there, setting policy for the store. In class, as Steve has heard when we've co-taught, I'll refer to this as uh, you know a situation where the, the owner of the Baskin-Robbins franchise comes in and tells all the employees that you know our, our new policy is we're going to greet every person that comes in the door with a hearty hey-ho. Um, so you get different things like that. What, which of it is this? Um, the authority source is usually stated up front in this introductory clause. And here uh, it's just a generic authority vested in me as president by the Constitution and laws of the United States. I hereby order the following things. Um, when you read through it, what's going on is it's President Biden setting policy for U.S. government acquisition practices relating to commercial spyware, which we'll talk more about in a moment. Um, and Steve, I, I would characterize this as the boss setting rules for the company. Um, so this isn't some separation of powers <coughs> issue or, or any kind of you know interesting interpretation of a delegated statutory authority. It's just that um, the organization, that is the U.S. government, does lots of uh, software acquisition, some of it, uh, as we know, uh, tends to involve or can involve spyware. And this is setting some policies that for the time being, the boss has said everybody needs to follow. Now, um, what's the underlying rationale? What's the problem to be addressed? The problem is this. Uh, as people who follow the story of NSO Group and the Pegasus spyware or anything like that, that is, if you've been following stories about governments who uh, gain the ability to uh, track someone's phone or harvest data off their phone or their computer using software that their own organizations didn't invent, but rather they bought it from some commercial provider. Um, and, and sometimes these things are used for uh, perfectly defensible law enforcement or national security interests by a country, but sometimes they're used instead for, at least from a rule of law and democracy perspective, uh, very inappropriate uses such as suppressing political dissent, uh, tracking political opponents, uh, engaging in human rights abuses of various kinds. Um, if you have commercial vendors who are lawful companies, they're in the business of, of creating these software suites and then selling them, uh, sometimes they may sell to the wrong person. Now, some amount of that's going to be perhaps against the country, the company's wishes and expectations. Sometimes it's going to be quite foreseeable. Sometimes it might be quite knowing and supported. It's a whole spectrum of possibilities. Um, the Israeli company NSO Group had gotten into hot water after uh, Citizen Lab and other NGOs uh, were able to show that it seemed to be at least reckless, if not worse, in selling its software to countries that were then using it in, in clearly abusive ways. And this has led to a, a campaign of uh, attention to the general problem that this represents, because sometimes those same companies also are selling to rule of law respecting governments like the United States government. And what you're seeing here is an expression of that movement. And the Biden administration is saying that henceforth, we're going to have this clearly stated policy that we want to avoid buying software from companies in this situation. And here are the policies and procedures we're going to use to try to give that some teeth. So the policy is, quote, uh, the United States government shall not make operational use of commercial spyware that poses significant counterintelligence or security risks to the United States government or significant risk of improper use by a foreign government or foreign per persons. And so those are defined in various ways, but let me just kind of break that out. The idea is uh, it's not going to limit the ability of the U.S. government to acquire these software suites 
for uh, non-operational purposes like research or perhaps uh, to analyze for our own cybersecurity purposes. So there, there could still be purchases from them. But if the idea is, hey, FBI needs to try to find someone who knows how to um, access this sort of phone remotely or CIA or NSA or somebody else for whatever reason needs to try to acquire a capability from a private vendor rather than generating it internally, then there's going to have to be an analysis, a due diligence phase. And it's got two different forbidden zones. And the first forbidden zone is don't do this if the entity you're buying from um, has a track record in effect of doing things that, are, that, that make us vulnerable. Okay, that that's not about the human rights abuse. That's about don't don't be stupid and buy things from companies where if you're buying them, this might actually be a risk to ourselves. Um, and then separately, and, and don't buy things from companies that then enrich those companies when they do things that are hostile to us. Uh, and then the more flashy part that I've been describing, also don't buy from companies where they where there's reason to believe that they've been reckless with respect to the uh, human rights impacts from other people they sell to. And then there's a bunch of back and forth about exactly what process will be used. The DNI is going to do a national intelligence estimate. All the relevant entities, which basically are the national security enterprises that engage in intelligence collection or investigative uh, surveillance activities of this kind, they've each got to make determinations from time to time and let each other know about them. Pretty straightforward. There's a lot of wiggle room in here. There's there's some exceptions for special circumstances when it's absolutely necessary to get the capacity. Um, but I think it's it's a it's a useful step forward in the really tricky business of trying to ensure that we are not. Uh, how should I put this? The United States as a government is not through its uh, acquisitions fueling an industry that includes elements or that's not taking due care with respect to some of the purchasing. Um, you might say there's even a little bit of a, a decoupling story here. So we're used to talking about technological decoupling from the point of view of there being a block, an economic and technological block emerging around China, um, which basically is China and those it sells to. And then the the rule of law countries, both both in the East and the West, here, it's a little bit more about technological decoupling between rule of law countries and in a relatively wide range of more authoritarian regimes. I think that's sort of where this points towards. Anyways, um, I don't think it gets too legally complicated beyond that. So, Steve, I think I'm going to wrap that there. Um, I think there, there we goes to... that Biden administration again doing all these crazy executive orders. <laughs> well, this this is one, you know, earlier in our careers, there was so much anxiety that attended the, the phrase executive order in, in part because uh, there, remember the whole uh, mania over signing statements? Yes. And uh, I don't think we should get into that here, but maybe that's a, <laughs> that could be a fun deep dive topic down the road. Um, this one is just sort of ordinary business, I'd say. <laughs> okay. Um, Steve, this arraignment in Manhattan today? Yeah. What's going on there? Uh, there's a guy. He did some crimes. He's being arraigned. He's been he, he has been charged. He's charged with some crimes. Yes. We'll see. We'll uh, see. Well, okay. There's going to be an arraignment. Yes. Uh, well, I mean, he did some crimes. All right. Well, um, yeah, you you're gonna. In this case, we'll definitely have to be more specific. <laughs> yes. Can you elaborate? Can you can you narrow that one down, please? So I just want to say two things. I don't think either of them will be controversial. I don't think either of them will take very long. Um, thing number one is holy fracking like hysteria batman can we wait to see the indictment before passing judgment on its validity no no I, we can't i mean the 
this is it's like it's like Barr's preempting the Mueller report, right? Like the the attempt to basically like shape a narrative about an indictment no one has seen. Yeah, is just I I, I like I've tried really hard to not like. Well, that's why I say like, look, we we, we shouldn't be piling yeah. on in yeah. any direction on this. We haven't we don't even know what the other than to say yet. stop piling on. Yeah, um, and so that's thing one, right? Um. Thing, well, I guess there are three things. Thing two is um, in Dr. Seuss, there are only two things. I know, it, okay. but okay. Thing two is um, I don't think this will be the last time President Trump is arraigned. Um, Do you think that so? There's investigations also going on in Georgia in relation to the uh, election interference and the, the the call to the Secretary yeah. of State so the, of there's Georgia. The, there's the special grand jury in Fulton County, and then there's also the special the special counsel, the special prosecutor, whatever his name is, Jack Smith. Um, and that's the federal investigation related the Mar-a-Lago to classi- re- Mar-a-Lago Palooza retention of classified documents, even after being on notice that they're definitely there and their quest and has been made right. to so, so return them. So I, I actually, uh, my, the, I, I'm not going to speculate about the indictment, which I haven't read yet. I am going to suggest that I don't, I, I think that when all is said and done, this is going to be the least of Trump's worries. The other two you just described, so potentially uh, potentially inappropriately attempting to interfere with the uh, election situation in Georgia and then the 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 persistent withholding even after being on notice of classified documents, these seem to, to many of us weightier potential charges in, in kind of multiple respects than the, the yeah. hush money to Stormy Daniels. Well, I mean, it's, it's not the hush Although money some, itself. some would say like, hey, look, it, you know, that kind of fraud, you know, Michael Al- Cohen had to go to jail Al- for Al-, it. Al Capone got caught for tax evasion, right? Uh, so, I mean, it's not just the hush money, right? The idea is that Trump actually engaged in various forms of financial fraud to cover up the hush money payment by its, like, if you just, you know. Right, structured payment. Right. Anyway, long story short, right? Like, I, I, I don't, felonies are felonies. Like, I don't, you know, I, I don't, I, the, the hysteria from various Republican politicians that, like, this is, you know, um, a crime no one would ever be prosecuted for. There, there's well, you know, there's sort of an interesting analogy here to this sort of let him play idea, yes. right? So yes. Mitch Berman has famously written about how you know you can do some jurisprudential analysis of certain intuitions we have about in the context of late in a basketball game, should you call the should you call the hand checking right. rules a little less tightly because right. suddenly the stakes are higher? I, something similar seems to be at work here, where some people are expressing the view that. Whatever's going on with the Stormy Daniels story, that because of the the context of who we're talking about and the election coming up, that maybe this, if there is an offense here, maybe it shouldn't have been charged. I think in a in a rule of law country, as a general proposition, if you're talking about sound evidence to believe a felony has occurred, um, it is a dicey proposition to suggest that somehow prosecutors should nonetheless sit on their hands because you because you are visibly associated with one political right. party. Right. right. You you can make the argument that you know, damn the torpedoes. You you got to enforce stuff. And I was and, just reading about the Battle of Mobile Bay. Sorry. Were you? Yeah. Damn the damn the torpedoes. Yes. So, anyways, um, although we'll see. although the second part of the quote actually turns out to not be accurate. Okay. Do right. Tell. Farragut did not say "damn the torpedoes" full speed ahead. He said "damn the torpedoes." Let's go get lunch. Four bells. Oh, for and so non-nautical folks are like, uh, oh, full speed ahead. There you go. It's a translate. The, the second part to translate. It's a paraphrase from okay. Navy speak. So anyway, put, so put brackets around it. Next um, time. So, so I agree with all that. The, so I said there, was, and then I think the third thing I think there's something else we also agree on is the Constitution has absolutely nothing to say about whether like there is no constitutional constraint on right. a criminal this, prosecution of a former yeah. president. I don't think the Constitution bars criminal prosecutions of a sitting president. 
but it sure didn't pose obstacles to you know you, you one of the, there are many benefits I'm sure to being a former president, but immunity from prosecution is definitely not one of them. Right, this isn't no Chile. One, no one seriously claims otherwise. Well, right. well, well. Oh, there's yeah. Well, maybe he does. I'm going to say no one seriously claims otherwise. Let, let's put it do any? Do any? Uh... No one I know would call at this hour. <laughs> <laughs> do, when Harry met Sally? Yeah, yeah. No one I know. Um, all right. So, anything else to say about that, or shall we just hold tight until uh, um, we see more? I just, I would just say to anyone. I mean, I, I suspect our listeners are the last people who need to hear this. But like, you know, y'all read the thing before you judge it. Yeah, we'll see. Okay. And, and, and maybe even wait to see what the evidence is. What? What? <laughs> what? What is this evidence of which you speak? I don't know. All right. Um, CENTCOM, as I said at the top of the show, uh, had a press release last night mentioning uh, something that happens somewhat episodically these days, but definitely more than uh, more than once in a blue moon, and that is a uh, use of lethal force in the Syria theater against the Islamic State uh, or its members. In this case, uh, they announced uh, what they called a unilateral strike, meaning that was U.S. forces only. It wasn't a partnered mission with the SDF, Syrian uh, Democratic Forces. And uh, it, it just says strike. I don't think it clarifies whether it was an airstrike or perhaps even a ground raid, but it resulted in, in the killing of uh, Khalid um, Ahmad al-Jabouri, a, a senior ISIS leader. And the interesting piece here is is a thing mentioned in CENTCOM's press release asserting that uh, al-Jabouri was responsible for planning ISIS attacks into Europe and that he developed or helped develop the leadership structure for ISIS. Um, so I wonder if we'll hear more details about what maybe there are details out there already about what attacks or planned attacks in Europe this might be linked to, um, whether this is something that looks backwards many years or whether it's involving something that's currently afoot. Anything that talks about external operations emanating in a planning or training sense from within Syria is a big deal. Uh, we don't actually get a lot of that talk publicly. I'm not suggesting that the intelligence agencies aren't um, seeing that sort of thing internally, but but you see very little public discourse about Islamic State plans to, to orchestrate external attacks from within Syria at this time. And uh, in some senses, that contrasts pretty sharply with how things were in years past. It's something worth watching. All right, Steve, have we exhausted our serious topics? I think we probably have. Um, okay, can we go frivolous? If we must. Uh, basketball, men's and women's NCAA championship games. Did you watch the Iowa-South Carolina women's game? I could not turn that game off. That was the best college basketball game I have seen. So so as you know, I actually am a, a long-time women's college yeah, basketball you're fan. You're not, not a recent convert. I am not a recent convert. I am I am a, a, the UConn women's basketball team was my jam all the way back to when I was in college and law school, where I went to law school with Sue Bird's older sister. No kidding. Yes. That's interesting. Um, what a factoid. So, somewhere in my house, I have a t-shirt. I have like a, a 2002 Final Four t-shirt that Sue Bird signed. Oh, take a picture and send that so I can share it with my niece. She's a big Sue Bird cool. fan. Cool, I will. Uh, anyway, but so um, what? I, I, and, and obviously, anyone who's remotely familiar with women's college basketball over the last couple of years knows who Caitlin Clark is and knows about South Carolina. So this was always like an awesome matchup on paper. 
and it did not disappoint. The the crowd, the atmosphere was unbelievable. The level of play, like the you know, because I mean, you had basically, I mean, you know, Iowa's very good, but like South Carolina is. I mean, South Carolina has like five future WNBA players on its yeah. team, right? Iowa has maybe one and a half. Um, it was something. Yeah, yeah. Kaitlyn Clark had a hell of a I mean, game. Just it, how how often do you see in like a in like a winner go home type deal, a superstar player literally put their team on their back? Yeah, yeah. It was super impressive. Yeah. And then and then the final didn't disappoint either. I feel yeah. unless you, unless you're an Iowa fan. No, no. I, so listen. Yeah. I mean, I, I like Caitlin Clark. I was not. I had no rooting interest in the final. I was rooting for Iowa in the semis because I I yeah, like yeah. the sort no, of the underdog. The, yeah. yeah. Um. I I really. Didn't like the officiating in the final. Mm-hmm. I thought the refs were way too big of a presence. In I mean, yeah. look at the, the let them play. You well, might say. I mean, the, listen, the Iowa South Carolina game. I actually thought what the refs did a pretty good job with a yeah. really difficult game to call. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I don't know why the final was so different. Um, I also hate Kim Mulkey, so that's another problem she, for me. She uh, she's a she is a uh, appealing character from a plotting perspective. <laughs> she definitely generates the uh, the. the Antagonist vibes. So, do you have any opinion on the whole, like, I think, kind of silly discourse going on right now about the trash talking? Stupid, silly, um, uh, somewhat racist discourse, right? I mean, like, you know, so Caitlin Clark, like, she is a world champion trash talker. ESPN literally did a story about how good of a trash talker she is. It's it's like a part of it's, it's a that is a venerable uh, basketball tradition. When Angel Reese does it back to her, no one cares except like the 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 worked up crowd. So can we? Dis- would you draw a distinction between in game trash talking, yeah. and and is there a different set of norms that ought to? I'm not saying have to, yeah. but ought to uh, govern when the last whistle blows. So I think a lot of the criticism has to do with. The, you know, you know the ring gesture and other things after the game had ended. Yeah, that I, struck me as bad sportsmanship. I I don't know. I I, I think I. So I'll put it this way: I think like there's a difference between what you do literally twenty as you're walking off the court when the game is over and like what. You so do it kind of fades out. Room. Like maybe right. if it's. If, like, you're, so, if you're trash talking, like, right. like in, if, if you, at if, the awards ceremony right. afterwards, as opposed to off, the immediate exactly. after, like yeah, you, I'd, you, I'd buy that. If you walk off the court and refuse to shake hands, like, okay, yeah, fine. that's bad sportsmanship. But like, I mean, you know what? Like, I want athletes to be emotional. Sure. Right? Like, I, you know, um, my grandmother, bless her heart, my grandmother's favorite professional athlete of her life is Draymond Green. Um, right, that is really fun. I um, love that. Uh, it's, this is it's yeah. a it's a whole Detroit thing. And, and for those who don't know, Draymond is is an amazing player who who is known as someone who's got great passion that sometimes gets him in trouble. Uh, well, but, <laughs> is, that, is that an understatement? I mean, the, it's it's the classic like desperate to have him as a teammate, hate him when he's on the other team. Oh, exactly. And every team needs to have that right? person, that grit player. Yes. Who, I mean, you, Texas basketball. Some people say Brock Cunningham's yeah. like that. I don't think it's quite fair to Brock, but um, you got to have your grit player who gets under the skin and there was a game like two weeks ago where draymond like you know starts yelling at everybody in the middle of the third quarter and spurs the warriors into a like 20 point comeback these people manny ginobili sometimes would play that role for the spurs i I just i I just like the the, it's like tell me you've never played competitive team sports without telling me you've never played competitive team sports you know (laughs) the 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 notion that like we should be um micro parsing the behavior of like elite um, athletes on the court in the middle, like I mean, this is just this is such a non micro parsing, sure. But I mean, it's do we ha- is it all or nothing? 
right? Like, can we not have some dialogue about yeah, like, I mean, at listen, any level? So if Angel Reese had tripped Caitlin Clark and then stood over her leering well, tri- and cursing her out. Tripping, yes. physical contact, I would argue, like really changes the, the subject. Right, how about from, this? Right. Caitlin Clark falls, right? Like okay. she trips at the end of the yeah. game. Yeah. Right? And Angel goes Reese over and taunts goes her. over and taunts her. Like, yeah. Yeah, I'd be okay. saying like, yo, that's So there's a spectrum. Yes. But like the notion that like doing back to Caitlin Clark the same like I can't see you gesture that she does to everybody is like somehow inappropriate when you're literally just walking off the court having beaten her in the national. I mean, I just I just can't get fired up about that. All right, fair enough. Well, um, what about the men's oh, game? It, how, hey, by the way, what what an amazing sign of the times that the men's game in many ways just. Not as interesting as what went on in the women's so final four. So this is four. not the first time that's been true, right? I mean, like, I feel like there have been a couple of, you know, years where the women's final four has actually somewhat outdone the men's well, final but four. But this time the drama. ratings backed it up. Yes. Ten, almost 10 million. 10 million 9.9 million, million yeah, people, yeah. which is a, a, a landmark for women's yeah, college that's sports. That's remarkable. Um, I, I, so... I thought after last weekend, I thought this was all over and UConn was going to walk away with it. And I, for yeah. one, for once in this tournament, yeah. I was right. They really, uh, they they never really. There was a little run there. Yeah, it started to get interesting. Got down to about six points, yeah. and then you know, like a good strong championship team, they they fought that off. Very impressive run. It was uh, sort of anticlimactic. Are you at all interested in this golf situation that's no. going to unfold? Let me let me try to make it interesting by tying in international politics. You, you lost me at golf. Do you know about the the Saudi yes. uh, backed live yes, the live tour tour? Right. I listen, I, hey, my only daily podcast is part of the interruption. So so there's a lot of tension between the players uh, who are in the two separate tours now, PGA and Live. Normally, they're not going to be playing each other, but at the Masters, they're gonna. Right, because the Masters is not a PGA event, and so everybody comes. And so in, in many ways, it is like an old-school Super Bowl, it, the rare chance to bring, or an old-school World Series, like, ah, interleague play. Right. Only this time, there's real reason for the AL and the NL, the other. AFL and the NFL to really dislike each other. This should make for some potentially interesting, perhaps edgy, uh, you know, by golf standards, <laughs> by golf uh, standards. engagements this weekend. So keep an eye out on that. Uh, I will I will definitely not be watching, but but I will I will I will I will look forward to Pardon the Interruptions coverage on Monday. Very good. Okay. Uh, anything else? You're you're not caught up on Mandalorian yet. I'm not. I'll say this. I'm, this is no spoilers. But um, like all the the Disney Star Wars TV series, you get a couple. You get your main character plot lines. You get a few interesting other plot lines. And I think they are. Those shows tend to be better with the other plot lines than the main character plot lines. The the maybe the acting, certainly the dialogue. It's al- It almost feels like there's a maybe somebody a different person has their hands on the script there. I don't know. So look out for that once you finally get caught up. Are you watching anything else? Um, so um, Karen and I. Um, shoot, what was I going to say? Um, we just finished Shrinking, which is great. We're in the middle right. of Ted Lasso, which I, I don't know. This season has not quite hit me yet. I have not. We haven't started in. We certainly will start in soon. Um, we, um, I, I think the next time, and I've been so crazy um, busy that we haven't had much watch. Karen is Karen is is catching up on Vanderpump Rules, um, which, you know. I don't know that one. I just sit next to her. I, I know there's a big to-do and a whole thing, but, like, I don't <laughs> quite know more than that. Um uh, are you watching Daisy Jones and the Six? I am not watching Daisy Jones and the you Six. Should. Um, but you know, I'm really excited to watch um, the new Tetris movie on Apple oh, yeah. TV. I heard, heard a good review of that. Um, and then wait, there's one other show. Shoot, um, 
Yes, and then Apple also has a new show called Extrapolations. What's that? Uh, eight all-star stories explore our planet's fate. Um, it's basically like a series of vignettes at different points in the future. Um, oh, with like, like is it kind of a post-apocalyptic? So it's dystopia? sort of it's, it, not necessarily post-apocalyptic, but like heading toward like cataclysmic environmental disaster at different points in the future, and how society changes and reacts in response. So kind of imagining if the sea levels came up X number of inches, what's going on in Manhattan in that world. Yeah. There's been lots of great sci-fi writing in recent years yes. that kind of of that kind. I assume yes. this maybe is building off some of I that. Think yeah. So so I'll, the, the, we haven't actually started watching it yet because, again, me busy. Why, hey, why, why don't you just watch Waterworld with Kevin Costner? Well, yeah. <laughs> Did you ever see that movie, that awful, awful movie? Yeah. Although, So, so this, is a, this is a good question. What's worse, Waterworld or The Postman? Oof. Is there a difference? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, touche. Um, but the so so the the reason why I'm so excited about extrapolations is that it's usually impossible to get Karen to watch sci-fi. Oh, okay. And this one's like <laughs> close enough to reality that like she looked you, at the so trailer you can and sneak it faster. To, you just don't say sci-fi. Just don't say sci-fi. All right. It's like future fiction. It's just like hey, this, it's it's sort of like a pseudo documentary about climate change. Historical. It's historical fiction where the history is in the future. <laughs> <laughs> good luck. It's like Edgerton, only in the future. Yeah, good luck, my friend. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, and then we got, um, obviously, Passover and Easter coming up, so mm-hmm. that'll be a whole to-do. Both our families will be very busy. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, this is the, 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 the funniest thing. The, well, so moving to the South when you haven't lived there, um, I think Easter is actually the biggest shock holiday of them all. Right? How so? So in the Northeast, right, like, you know, stuff's open on Easter. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, nothing is open on Sunday. Yeah, that's fair. Um, I mean, I think when I was a kid, you know, Friday was, Good Friday was pretty shut down too. Yeah, nope, 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 not, yeah. not. Well, I, you know, it, this is a silly example, but I was shocked to discover when I moved to Boston as, as a young guy, um, Columbus Day, this or Patriots Day, whatever they called it, there was like this whole thing, yes. everything shut down. Like, yes. what? Are, what is going on here? I couldn't believe that. Every every area's got their uh, inflection yes. based on their own relative history and cultural experience. Absolutely. Um, speaking of New York, right? Just I don't know if you saw this tweet last night. So you know, MTG is in New York trying to sort of stir up trouble around the Trump arraignment. Oh. She tweeted last night, "Quote: New York City looks like Gotham City." <laughs> That's pretty funny. To which my response is. Bruce Wayne would be proud of the observation. But know. wait until you find out that he's Batman. Don't spoiler alert. Oh, man. Come on, I just, man. I just gave it away. <laughs> All right. On That's that really, note. Wait, is, so do you think do you think she really was like, hey, this is like this is a lot like what it looks like in those Batman yes. movies? Yes. That's really funny. Wait till she goes to Chicago. Starts talking about Metropolis. I mean, do you think she knows Metropolis? You, know, uh-huh. you think she knows Superman as, as much as she knows Batman? The Superman movies are pretty weak these days. Yeah, so seriously. Uh, um, I don't even know what to say. All right. Yeah. Uh, on that note, he is at Bobby Chazdam. It's even a score of We are at NSL Podcast. Six weeks till publication day. Go buy your copy of The Shadow Docket. Congrats. Thanks. Um, and, you know, happy Passover. Happy Easter. Stay safe out there. Adios.